is Tundi Vargatkin, and this is episode 28 of our Treasure Island Pedagogies podcast series from the Center of Innovation in Education at the University of Liverpool, where we share our light bulb moments, teaching props and pedagogies as we cohabit our Treasure Island, the space for contact time with students. We have three guests today, Karen Klinkard, Louise Uni, and Russell Crawford. Can I ask every one of you to please just briefly introduce your name and uh, your role? So hi, I'm Karen Clencard. I'm a Principal Teaching Fellow at the University of Southampton and I teach marketing. Hi there, I'm Louise. Um, I'm a GP and a Professor of Medical Education at Queen Mary University of London. Hello there, uh, Russell Crawford. I'm an Associate Professor of Education at Falmouth University and Pro Vice Chancellor of Academic Services. Great, thank you everybody. Uh, we look forward to our discussion and uh, so let's hear some of your light bulb moments. So as we said, um, light bulb moments is when you have as an educator or yourself as a learner that experience of, of people are getting it that particular learning episode is about. And can you share some of these with us please? Okay, so it was actually when I was, dare I use this term, pracademic, a practitioner academic being a student myself. So um, as somebody who'd worked in marketing in various technology companies, including IBM, and being made redundant, I needed a new way of life. And um, the university I uh, was recruited by was actively looking for people who had relevant professional backgrounds come into and learn the trade of, of teaching. So I was doing my PGCE, did that, and then I was doing a master's in research methods. And I was, at the time, the course leader for three undergraduate cohorts, uh, marketing, marketing with psychology, and digital marketing students, which was a new program. So I started to qualitatively research and interview those students who came back for a placement to ask them what had they learned, what had they developed, what was different in their experience between pre-placement, during placement, and now what were their aspirations for the final year, pre-graduation. And listening to their stories was my light bulb moment. Listening to them exploding my assumptions and presumptions about what they would say about working in either a very small business context or a very large, well-known business context. And I thought they would say wildly different things and they weren't. And that's what then helped me develop um, my thinking and approach. And it's always been something I want to be able to do. The The premise of, of this um, podcast was something along the lines of being on a treasure island with students. So I would want to have a conversation where I really understood what had they experienced and what difference did it make? Because in my normal classroom teaching context, I don't always get time to have those one-to-one -one kind of real story uh, telling opportunities. So yeah, that's me. Well, do you mind if I go next? And please like to come back to the pracademic thing, something that very much interests me coming from a, in a creative arts background that we get an awful lot of our staff are in that uh, area. So my light bulb moment was teaching um, other teachers. So my, although my original degree is pharmacology and biomedical science teaching, um, I've been, I've been spent many years doing academic development and teaching and designing postgraduate certificates in higher education and masters in education. And my all time favorite thing, and it still is my all time favorite thing to do is essentially a lecture on how to give a lecture. 
And that's setting a very dangerous bar because A, you've got to do it well. You're absolutely walking the walk, but you spend the first 15 minutes giving them what they think is the most boring lecture in history. And then what you do is you do a Darren Brown-esque twist 15 minutes in and deconstruct what you did for 15 minutes in, in way of teaching everything from the fact that nothing is random, that their body language and their slide selections and the laser pointer and the, the psychology, the biology, the pedagogy all coming together there. It's really interesting for teachers that are fairly new to teaching a higher education to realize you don't just rock up and start talking, that there's a lot of preparation and there's a lot of um, awareness of how technology can can bite you in the backside if you're not careful with it. And when it fails, what's your plan B? And the reality, you have to have a plan B. So it was one of my all-time favorite things to do because at the end of it, what it, what it highlighted was that it wasn't as easy as it looked to give a lecture. Just on the, on the stories thing, picking up the sort of story thread, I guess, um, uh, my light bulb really was, um, well, I thought to be a good doctor, you had to know stuff. You have to be able to diagnose and treat. And um, the light bulb kind of came, I became an academic and a GP at the same time. And it came as I um, realized that it was very complex and messy. And there was a lot of things that did not fit into the the tidy little boxes that I had been taught. Um, and 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 then going back into being an academic and an educator and wondering how do I educate students for the messiness and complexity of practice and I'm not sure how to do it. So we started using the arts and um, started ex exploring what I call creative inquiry methodologies. And through that sort of enabling both student stories and patient stories and, and to be honest, it's been light bulb after light bulb after light bulb, even to, you know, 20 plus, well, 20 years down the line and I'm sort of this week been looking at the things that students were saying and it's it's um and the things that they're going through and the challenge and what i discovered is as i tried to humanize the patients the students also uh were humanized through these creative inquiry methodologies and so i've been exploring person-centered care on the one hand right well, that's where i started and then i've ended up with human flourishing and trying to move the ball from resilience towards human flourishing for the clinicians so that's that's my sort of light bulbs can we unpick all three because I think you all really mentioned really interesting approaches and I guess I don't know whether in reverse order just because um, I think the connection seems between Karen and Louise yours that you, you talk about the human as in the whole student and then we could come back to Russell to your um, lecture approach as well. So Louise, can you give us a little bit more detail about your creative inquiry approach? Yeah, so it started by exploring, um, well, I did my master's as I designed a course. So it's like a two-week course. The students have been running it for over 15 years where I engage with arts therapists, arts for health consultants, drama, music, whatever. And I also facilitate and I set up the environment. I, I um, do a lot of work around making it safe, talking about process rather than product. I talk about vulnerable leadership. Uh, I think about being an artist of the invisible as you try to hold a transformative space. And so students engage with all of this. And I, I'm just setting up for the next course in February. So I've been running it many times. And it's where I've learned the most about students and creative inquiry and where I've explored and experimented. So um, they have an opportunity to hear how the arts are used with patients. But the biggest, bigger part of the journey is where they do their own poetry, for example, and then reflect on it. And what I've discovered is... There's no faster way that I've found to get people talking about um, the human dimension of healthcare. So, you know, they learn all the stuff that they're supposed to know and all the things that they're supposed to do, but actually how we are with patients and, and engaging with that human. So 
I know, for example, the trauma that people go through, the um, uh, how you know how that leads to mental health problems. Often people are boxed up, so it just opens things up, and the students themselves open up. So it's it's really profound. And um, just reading a piece from last week, the student talking about resilience and how that that sense of how you have to really be tough, and um, they all feel like they have to be that and macho, and and actually that there might be another way. So I've constructed a flourishing. Um, a little flourishing uh, five-point model that I sometimes explain, to, well, I explain to the students and we explore. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you might have an example of some of this. So is it the poetry with the students that you, you that they write um, on some particular topics or things that they come across as an issue as a, as a GP um, candidate? Yeah. yeah, so it's all medical students across the field. And, and so I do it in different ways. In the special course, there are different topics. So it could be on um, addiction. It could be on the wounded healer. It could be on, um, I'm trying to think, we have a photographer that comes in and talks about patient lived experience. It's all lived experience, essentially. And so they might write poetry. They might collage. They might mm -hmm. do some kind of artwork. They might sculpt. Um, and then I also invite it across the year group um, with uh people on GP placement and so they have an option of rather than just writing a written reflection you know how students just make things up to sound uh, or they get chat GPT to write it so I invite them to actually um, do a creative inquiry piece where they and it basically means that they have two languages so not just written so they have to do the written reflection with it but they create something as well so inviting that creative process to get at the whole mm -hmm. so I can share examples but yeah isn't that a great example of diversity of assessment though in a different way because you're essentially giving them a chance to demonstrate their learning where it's not necessarily the traditional written piece or even the traditional performative piece, but they can pick. And in picking, that tells them, it gives them a reflective opportunity, but it also gives them an, a way to demonstrate their understanding of the learning that you're trying to impart. That's amazing. I've never, I haven't quite sort of pushed that that boat, but I love that. I've been doing it since, I've invited that since 2004 and I've never used the words, I'm doing diversity of assessment. So thank you so much. <laughs> That's wonderful. But what I did discover is, you know, so lots of medics and even GPs might think this is a waste of time and why would you do this? But actually after about six years of running this course and feeding it in and putting it on the website and sharing it back, about 90% of students were choosing it in general. And, and quite a few of those were not all profound, but quite a few, you know, really profound works. Well, if you think about it, what it does is it neutralizes uh, language barriers for start. So if I can if I can elect to to go through the motions of your course and not have to write a lot, and that's not my confident area, but I can sculpt instead, or I can give you some sort of image-based interpretation, you've you've just welcomed. And again, we're, we're all seeing post-COVID post the sense of belonging is a big thing. You've just welcomed people to your course by going, actually, it's not really how well you write in English based on your background, but it's, it's how much you can impart those ideas of the, as I, I hesitate to use a phrase, but the, the, the gain in learning that they've had across your course. I'm writing this down. This is really helpful for me. <laughs> I was going to say that actually I'm, I'm having a bit of another light bulb moment myself because I'm thinking, I connected that in my own research because... Um, very selfishly, I was thinking when you come to the question about what's our chosen pedagogy, I was going to propose my own, which is very selfish, um, and very self-promotion. But then I'm a marketer, so I'll forgive myself. Um, but of course, when I connect what you're both saying, although this is my notebook, I'm thinking what I'm asking students to do is very narrative based. It's very much write and tell me a story of a time when you 
have demonstrated X, Y, Z. And those X, Y, Zs are five-point models, similar to Louise. We didn't hear what your model is, so we'll come back. Um, but it's it's called Agile, A-G-I-L-E. So I, I tried to theme from those interviews with those students what were kind of areas that seemed to be uh, ones where, which would help students if they wrote a story about it and they perhaps came to an interview with someone to give them an example that they could prove they were A, adaptable, D, a, G, a gatherer of people or ideas um, or resources, I, that they have an understanding of their current past and future aspiration identity and what communities of practice do they want to belong to or do they need to belong to in order to achieve that new identity? To what extent then does that need them to leverage being a lifelong learner? And then the final one is E, to what extent they could demonstrate they've been enterprising of some way. So opportunistic, creative, problem solving, critical thinker, not just that they've done some kind of startup challenge at some point in life. So thinking about more, more conversely, go ahead, Russell. Well, I'm just thinking what you're doing there is outlining a reflective model, a brand new reflective yeah. model. And one of the biggest challenges, certainly in my career across several universities, is getting staff and students to use a reflective model as a scaffold. Because everybody thinks they can reflect until you try and then they can't reflect. Or they find that it's very superficial. What your agile model is a really tight little reflective model in practice. That'd be quite interesting to see how that that was tested. Very much happy to share it. It is a reflective narrative tool. I've got seminar guidance, tutor guidance, student guidance, journal papers, the lot. So yeah, self promotion. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that Karen that you wanted to pick out? Maybe while we're here, we can might yeah. as well talk a little bit more about it because I think that's your broad pedagogy as well for the island. Yeah, right? because I think if we're connecting all these pieces together, and hopefully I'll remember all the different pieces because I didn't write notes. But um, if we're thinking about reflection, yes, there's lots of different ways to do it, and the typical models we teach students can do it in a very kind of surface not very deep, not very insightful level, if it's done, if, if the assessment guidance is given in a fairly surface way. Um, so students should be forgiven for that. So if it's then going to be more of a conversation, so you mentioned the word assessment. I've used Agile both within assessed learning, first year undergraduate students on business programs, about 600 of them, second year students who are just pre-placement application, thinking about their personal professional development. Um, I've not used it with final year students, I've used it with cohort postgrad students, but I've also had it as a kind of sideline, just a conversation starter between myself and my personal tutees. So it doesn't have to be part of assessment either. So I think maybe taking our pedagogies and our learning and our understanding of, of that kind of empathy journey really actually taking time to listen to someone else's story and so i'm taking away from what louise was saying maybe i adapt the the model to include ways for people to be more diverse and inclusive in coming up with different approaches to sharing their narrative with me um but i hope that then it there's two things it then becomes um something they can go back to and edit uh, because it's an online cloud sharing, like a Google form, Microsoft form um, survey. Um, they can choose to share it with a placement tutor, careers officer, interview. They can put it into their social media profile. They come back and change it over time, future employers. 
Um, but secondly, it becomes then for us from the research side, kind of a thesaurus, a glossary of terms expressed in the way in which students talk about employability and entrepreneurial skill development. Because we use the term employability in higher education, the students don't talk about career or employability. It's just not their language. So the more students share their narratives with me, the more I'm learning then ways I should talk about it that are more relatable when I'm um, in that conversation. So I'll stop there. It's interesting though, the potential for that over lo longitudinally, isn't it? Because in essence, what you're getting is a reflection of the change in the sector and the change in the expectations for employers as they, the students, because you're right, the students don't understand or really use that language very much, but they do live it. Mm. And in that longitudinal development phase, what you'll get is a, is a, is a, a reflection of what the employers are asking for, what the students understand by that they're going into employment over time, which is in any given three, four year status, because it's a typical life expectancy of a standard higher education course, yeah. stick, a, stick a crisis in the middle, whether that's cost of living, whether that's anything mm -hmm. else, and you'll see mm -hmm. a change. Yeah. In, I have got pre and post COVID data actually, yeah, very yeah. good point. But I, I think also I want to emphasize that it's not only about being employed because it can also be being a freelancer, being a consultant, being self-employed or working for a very micro business as well, where you may be a founder or a shareholder or co-creator. So it's not, not only about going out there and working for someone else. My chosen pedagogy, just because I think it, it links, sorry, Tindy, yeah. it links very well with that is gamification for learning. So not all of learning, because that's gamification of learning is things like snakes and ladders, top trumps, sticking a sticking a learning context on. Gamification is designing the game to the bit of learning that you need. Now that's terrifyingly flexible because it can be anything. And so I decided to bring a, a, a wipeable deck of cards with me because there's not a lot you can't do with a reusable marker or a set of blank cards, whether that's text-based or image-based. And that's something that my research colleagues and I in this space are very interested in what's the difference in understanding you can show a picture of a bicycle or a pen but if you actually write the words and you get all the context and the connotations and the understanding and all the surrounding context take that into a a game and the the, the one i'm thinking of here we've called oracle is about um listening skills negotiation and listening skills and what happens with Oracle is a, a deck of cards with um, words on it. In this case, although we're working on an image version, is played around sets of people. And we've tried this with all sorts of age ranges to create, collaboratively create a narrative, a story. Now, at first you're doing listening skills because you're trying to remember where the, the story's going because you're coming up and you're around and it goes circular. Um, but then eventually at the end, you're starting to collaborate. And in some cases, what's the, the term collaboration? It gets collaborative, but it's also competitive at the same time. Yeah. Um, but it, it, to collaboratively create this story. Say it and, again. <laughs> like, collaboration. Collaboration. <laughs> but that, that, that gamified learning, we've done uh, games on listening, communication skills, games on ethical decision-making, games on deductive reasoning. And they're designed to the piece of learning that you need. And I think that's where the quality comes in. Then you get a game that does a thing very well. Although, you know, certainly I'll share on this one. We had uh, a pharmacology-based game. The very first game was pharmacology-based. Match up the drug mechanism with the name of the drug with its side effects. 
and you terrifying how many people got that wrong even at the you know the, at the staff level right yeah. up until the first exposure to the first set of uh, i think it was third year medical students turned it into a drinking game against their will it is not acceptable you're not allowed to turn other people's educational games into drinking games we had to actually make that announcement <laughs> Especially with right. with healthy pharmacologists. Yeah. <laughs> so so can I ask a question? How are you designing the games? And now that ChatGPT has arrived, is that very different? Because you mentioned like a deck of cards, which sounds not very ChatGPT. That sounds... Well, we were, we were lucky when we started on the gamification. It was well, well pre-COVID. And so we were into physical games. So the cards, the boards, the, the sort of interactions and the, the, the physicality, mainly because that that scaled very nicely with the size of the group playing three, four, five folks around. Then when COVID hit, that became very problematic. And we tried to, and we did make some electronic versions of our games, which were, were really worked, but in a different way. And that's, uh, and it, you're either going to make a decision there, either all your educational research is now going to be how it works differently in an online or versus an in-person context, or you let enough oceans flow enough under enough bridges and you get back to what you were really after, which is does a communication and listening skills game measurably improve both of those metrics? And that's sort of where we, we ended with it. So they're physical games, low tech, easy to do, easy to replicate, to keep costs down as well. Um, one of the one of the eye openers for us when we started uh, the, the games, collected games are called BrainSip games with a colleague from Keele University. One of the big eye openers was that we were anticipating a university buying copies and copies and copies of these games down the line. In reality, the students wanted their own copy. And the second that came on deck, you could not start charging students a lot of money for, for games. If it's aiding their learning, then it's okay. That's a different ethos. You started to become a bit more student-centric in that ethos. And how did you get into it? I don't know. I'm still interested in this gamification. Am I allowed to ask? It was, it was the need. I mean, I might, as I said earlier, my degree is pharmacology. And one thing, and you might you might disagree, but one thing first and second year medical students struggle with is the pharmacology mm -hmm. uh, because they start to learn it in a line that paracetamol has this mechanism of action, if you can agree on it, and this set of uh, side effects. And so what we wanted to do was test that learning by actually swapping it around. I'll give you the mechanism. You tell me the name of the drug. Mm -hmm. And when we did that, you could you should see the, the success rate for the knowledge. And there's the same drugs, just just reversed overnight. And then the side effects, the pharmacy students love the side effects. They got them right all the time. But the medical students, a, little, a bit more hit and miss with some <laughs> of the side effects. And so what they were do, doing is learning patterns because, yeah. yeah, okay, a lot of early years undergrads is pattern recognition and applying it. What the game forced them to do was understand, actually, this is what propranolol does. And that you either, you don't have to then learn it in this linear way. And if you test it in a linear way, which is what our assessment at the time was doing, you get the answer. Goodness help you if somebody tests it in a non-linear way. Next thing you know, performance on that exam question, not so good. And, and even worse, performance on the knowledge in a clinical environment, not so quick. Mm. So that was where, but we, we designed the game to the, the learning need rather than come up with a game first. I like uh, interestingly, oh. I, I took the idea of gamification when I was first researching this whole Agile tool as well. And I thought about an online platform, almost like a mixing deck where students would be able to see one another and would be able to see one another's scores, not necessarily their narratives that could be, you know, privately owned. And then not so that it's a race to 
be the top or be the winner and be the strongest or have the highest ranking of skills, but more of an opportunity to learn, well, one, why have you ranked yourself as really high in this aspect, but really low in that aspect where I'm the opposite? So what could I learn from you? So it could be a peer sharing tool. Um, I did also think about the, the monetization of it and the idea that, you know, um, I don't know, the HEA, uh, Advanced HE would buy it and it would suddenly become a UK-wide tool and <laughs> we should be, yeah, no, you never really went that far. I, no. I think with the, if there can be benefits and values of the kind of open cloud sharing, iterative um, machine learning environment that we're in, um, my understanding is with AI tools, the more it's fed useful information, the more likely it is to spit out or produce better, more informed output. And so it should be a sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy eventually. We're going to go through lots of different phases where there's going to be at times an over-reliance of some students on the content that it's given as first draft or I'll just take that, I'll whack that in and that'll be good enough. But then eventually what they're getting out will be better. But I think it's really important for us at this kind of juncture to to be emphasising to students that we still need you to apply original, genuine, authentic self and understanding and your informed arguments around why this content is what it is and how can you improve it? How can you make it better? So it, it's a bit of a, a strange environment we're in. But I think being totally anti all of those tools is not the way forward because we have to accept it's it's our new reality. It's, it's here. The, it, yeah, the, the analogy I use is calculators. Mathematicians didn't stop doing maths when calculators <laughs> came out. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm guessing if you were using your approach to listening to what students are doing... Uh, for real, then that would be the reality we would be hearing. And as you say, that development of the critical capability in the students is the important thing. So, so we have started growing towards the island without teaching props and pedagogies. So we've got uh, Karen's reflecting tool and Russell's gamification for learning, especially with the deck of cards example. What other teaching props or pedagogies would you like to bring to the island? Oh, can I get? Can I put my favourite one in there? The one that's just the absolute best. We've got to bring a laser pointer. <laughs> Even on a bit island, there's nothing more liberating than how invisible you are when you've got a laser pointer, because you're directing the psychology of attention is a really interesting thing. But you're directing attention with that laser pointer wherever you put it. And whether the analogy is cats on YouTube following it around the room or whatever, if you want to be invisible. As an educator, grab a laser pointer and start pointing it almost anywhere, including ideally somewhere where there's some information that's relevant to them. And oh my goodness, I, I've always got one in the pocket for that reason. It's fantastic. You can disappear like a ninja with a laser pointer. Yeah, that's an oxymoron though, isn't it? Because you are disappearing by appearing because by calling attention to so. So I love that. I love that. Okay, great. So yeah, we've got a laser pen. Anything Can else? I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to bring a set. I have a little set of um, uh, collected postcards of all different kinds of images from what, and some old photos, some student images that they've created over the years, some actual postcards or whatever. Um, and they're so, it's such a powerful way into the creative inquiry space um, because 
people, particularly medics perhaps, or people that think that they're not in the not creative initially, um, can sometimes be a bit nervous when you start talking creative inquiry. But just about anyone could pick a postcard, and I frame it and set it up quite well. But but just as a very simple exercise of like choose choose a postcard that resonates with your lived experience as a medical student, and or as an educator, or as a clinician, or as a and it 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 very powerful. And then in small groups to discuss and the metaphor and that you know people just always enjoy that Nearly, not not everyone but most people really enjoy the kinds of conversations that then so you'll always end up on the, on your treasure island you'll always end up having being in spaces where people are having really interesting conversations i think i'd add um in terms of playfulness i i'd add in some kind of whiteboard board whether that's a virtual whiteboard or a physical one with lots of pens of different colours so that not only I, but students in the room can add notes and add drawings and play with the content that we're thinking about. I really find it compelling when I've got even a very large postgraduate set of students uh, in front of me in, in a more traditional lecture setting, that I'll draw some sort of comical, seasonally relevant random drawing whilst I'm waiting for the students to settle down and, and, and you know, get, get ready for the session. And I'm not very good at drawing, but I just flip my hand and do a few bits. And you hear a chuckle and it, you can hear people sort of just calming down and, and starting to look forward and thinking, oh, that's fun. And then they get their phones out and they take an image of it and, and, and they ask you a question. So I think keeping playfulness in, in every environment would be really helpful definitely that, that sounds great actually and and also just again that you're paying attention to where students are in terms of their being as they arrive to you so having that almost like a liminal space between their previous existence and then coming to your class and how you transition them to focus that's really interesting Okay, any other, uh, would you like to do any bartering between your items or anything in addition that we could, so we've got laser pointers, the reflective tools. I'm guessing, Louise, you might have in addition to your postcards, lots of arty, crafty things on the island so that yes. the students could do their creativeness. Anything Definitely. else? Yeah. Well, can I suggest that we take it all and put it in a big pile in the middle of the island? Yes. <laughs> sort of like a sort of a nice educational Hunger Games, and then people can people can run up and and pick the the style of teaching tool they want. You're bringing that competition again back. <laughs> Not at all. I said it. I said it. I said it in a nice way. Collaboration. Collaboration. <laughs> oh, the Hunger Games idea of it—that's quite gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I know that in the planning for the session, I, you asked what was our luxury item. I don't know if that's what you're asking now. Yes, the yes. ability to have music during the session, during the time, in the background. I'm a huge fan of soul music and Motown, so that's my go-to. And um, I also am rather secretly, but not very secretly, in love with Dave Grohl and uh, the Food Fighters. So any chance I can to kind of bring in, I'll play a video because it's thematically relevant to <laughs> the lecture topic and I shoehorn <laughs> it in and talk about my love of the man. So yeah, my husband's well aware. <laughs> oh, Darren, you're making me feel old. I used to let my medics into every lecture and I play them the War of the Worlds, the, the eve of the war on the way in and then 70s funk every other time. <laughs> Um, let me just say that the the generation in the early 2000s didn't appreciate it the same way I did. 
Well, I think it's, it's part of our role as educators to also educate them on really good news. Oh, no, the, <laughs> the biggest contextually relevant point. Biggest mistake I made as a brand new teacher way, way back when, St Andrews Medical School in the 90s, and I'd showed a picture of from Ghostbusters until I realised no, not a single person in that room was alive when Ghostbusters was, was new. <laughs> And it was like, oh, you learn a valuable lesson as a teacher about currency without being too hip. Yeah. But definitely, some of the some of the older stuff goes over their heads. Ghostbusters has had a revival. Okay, so uh, in terms of so this is sort of um, and, and I love this idea of almost like bringing your luxury items because you're bringing your identity as an educator. We talked about listening and having an understanding of students' experience while also connecting with the students. I think that's so valuable. Um, in terms of let's also talk about relaxing. So this is you off duty as an educator. So what would you do away from teaching? And um, and I, I guess, Karen, you would dance to the end of Hopefully. time. So that's not a problem. But Sing loudly any, any like other, no one's like... listening. Dance like no one's watching. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> when, when I've done an online lecture with the Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters and the video, and I'm sitting in the background forgetting that my camera's still on and my mic's still on, and it's gone recording. I thought, oh, oh no, I need to go back and take that out. It's so embarrassing. Yeah. It's just authenticity. Just call it authenticity. <laughs> Get away with murder. I think, I think if you're doing all the dancing and all the music, I'll be one beach over trying to very quietly build Lego, <laughs> which is great. Actually, I've taken up fairly recently as a mindfulness tool doesn't matter. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be Lego. It could be knitting. It could be anything at all. But yeah, something to take your mind out of the current and away into somewhere else. I just find it so relaxing to do that. It doesn't hurt that Harry Potter Lego was really, really cool. <laughs> I was going to ask, do you have sets to build, so particular things, or do you just take your Lego sets and... I think, I think that's that's highly personal, Tunde. Uh So yeah, <laughs> I, in the lines right now is a full size Hogwarts castle in Lego. Wow. It's it's getting out of hand. I might need an intervention. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, Louise, any luxury yeah. items for you? Well, I, I I couldn't nail it down to one, I'm afraid. So there's sort of crosses over all of the different things you said. I've, I'll bring my guitar, which I hardly ever get around to playing, or not as much as I'd like to. Uh, so I could do a bit of singing and playing and bring my bike to get around. I love cycling. I do That's not really a break. I do that all the time. But chocolate, am I allowed to bring something nice to heat? And maybe maybe some kind of crocheting, wool work, knitting-y something to like, yeah, so. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, sounds idyllic for the island. So we will be <laughs> plenty for with music, Lego and all sorts of craft and things. I'm liking yeah. this collectively. I'm, I'm there. When when are we going? Yeah. There's chocolate, there's music. <laughs> there's we're talking about flourishing, aren't we? We're back on the flourishing track. It's like <laughs> making a space for flourishing. Just imagine if you, if you could just go completely white sheet, blank sheet, start again, and every single class time interaction had all of those things in the middle of the room, and then you started your session. Yeah. But you tried to engage in that. I suppose the only one downside I'm seeing is I'm thinking about the example of Lego. My um, really lovely friend, Tammy Cena, she's developed a range of learning and IT tools around using Lego. And uh, my husband's passion is um, landscape photography, but he now is a photographer of properties for his business. So there's that divide between 
keeping something that you really enjoy for yourself that helps take you away from work and not wanting to bring that into work you know there's there's a, a line between it it suddenly being part of work instead of part of your personal downtime i don't understand what personal downtime is Karen. yeah it's it went the way of the dodo a long time <laughs> I, go, I do like the idea though if you put all that in the same classroom what would the exam look like it wouldn't look like recall of knowledge mm. it would look like understanding and comprehension it would look like collaboration and the way it measured that, it wouldn't be factual recall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, we got uh, ChatGPT to do all the factual recall, but it'd be good to kind of be able to build understanding of the, the as I started with, the complexity and the messiness of what we're trying to do so that we do more good than harm, perhaps. I mean, Russell, that's what you were talking about as well, that with linear learning, the difference between linear and applied learning, I guess, as, as well. So how you how you can nurture that with whatever tools you have available. Well, I mean, I just remember years past um, arguments with colleagues, professional arguments with colleagues around problem-based learning, which is a way that sometimes other, not just medics, but other, other people learn. And it's, it's a great way to teach, but it's a really difficult thing to assess because the definition of problem-based learning is this, the group sets their own learning goals. So how do you assess that? You can't have an exam that's unique to every 12 people. You've got to have a, a, assessable learning outcomes at the end. And I sometimes think that the, the way the system's wired up right now doesn't actually reward enough of the reflection, of the confidence, of the, the journey when you're, when you're so focused on the end point. And yes, okay, there's an employability or a, a sort of graduate aspect to that, but they'll get that en route anyway. I mean, Louise, do you have anything from your perspective? Because I guess with your approach with the medics, that you will have to do some of the professional body requirements to meet for the students. So it's... so obviously they do need to, I mean, I was joking about facts and skills. They do need to have their facts mm -hmm. and skills. They do need to be able to um, practice in professional ways. I think um, we do a lot around teaching those and, you know, we could, could do better on that. But I think the thing that's always feels to be missing and is a challenge to do in, in clinical practice is around understanding that human dimension. So we overvalue the pharmacology, for example, we overvalue the drugs and the treatments and we undervalue uh, the things that people can do to help themselves and uh, the, the ways in which inequity and injustice and other things are impacting, impacting people. So it's very easy for medics to become very tunnel vision and then it takes sort of years of practice before you realize that there's the picture isn't as quite clear cut as then. So that's the bit that I'm working on. And also to kind of, I, I think at a time where there is massive burnout, massive um, lack of belonging, loneliness, um, certainly within medicine, there's a huge kind of burnout with for medical, uh, medical students. It's a real worry. And then this sort of narrative of resilience and how you have to tough it through. You need to be strong and push through, which actually is causing more, I think, trauma and anxiety. And um, people then don't share their challenges and their needs and they feel like they have to be tough. And so I'm trying to come in and maybe that work is almost more important it's becoming that that bit is more important almost than the person-centered work because you know students are so relieved when they can so one of the i didn't go through the model but one of the the one that i have that other people don't have is shadow work i have in my flourishing model i have connection and meaning and all those other things that other people have the shadow work engaging with that which is um, that we're uncomfortable about in our situation or in ourselves and the arts and the creative inquiry in a safe space in a group where people are listening to each other where people are kind 
um, actually is very, very powerful. And you realize that lots of people are suffering with imposter syndrome. Lots of people are worrying about the mm -hmm. exam. They haven't all got it all together. And actually by just diffusing all of those expectations and tension is very powerfully healing. And so so that's where that's where I'm sort of trying to come in, I suppose. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, when you open up that well-being umbrella, what's sitting under it? Because more and more of the literature is pointing at personal effectiveness in well-being mm -hmm. rather than necessarily like resilience or handling stress or however you what's your coping strategies actually what what does it take for you to be personally effective what does it take for you to self decide actually this is too much for me i'm going to take a step back or this is stressing me out or triggering me and why and i, I do like that idea it sounds like an interesting interesting model i think it's so powerful um what you use that example because as you said it's partly a, a tool for them to use with patients but as you said it's also for themselves uh, and then just when you talked about putting perhaps some of those emotions that you have to that they have to come across as as doctors by their trauma mm -hmm. patients experience and then turning into poetry so it's that there seem to be a lot of emotional or other ways of accessing knowledge um, that they can work with that seems quite powerful. For me, it's kind of head, hand and heart. And so William Osler talked about that many, many years ago. But, you know, we often get stuck just in the head. But that isn't, you know, when where do we put the emotions? You know, where do we, we can't, that's probably, you know, you're more likely to die of liver cirrhosis as a doctor than your patient. But I think part of that is, this is my theory, that it is the pressures and the stresses and we have nowhere to put those. We don't think we should deal with those emotions and then how do we help our patients deal with their emotions if we are sort of shut up and can't mm -hmm. deal with our own so it feels like it's a double whammy if if we can start yeah. being human with ourselves then we can help our patients uh, realize the impact of the things that they've been through and all of this i think comes back to to sharing opportunities to if we go right back to the start of our conversations but listening and hearing the stories that quite often if you're stressed with something Having a moment where someone else asks you a question, whether it's directly, explicitly about the thing you're concerned about, or it just comes out as part of the conversation, and hearing yourself say it out loud is quite often an opportunity either, whether you want it or not, for the person to respond, give some advice, make a recommendation. As we all know, it's easier to you know advise someone on their own problems than it is to deal with their own. Um, but hearing yourself express what it is you're challenged with is an opportunity for you to actually become aware of it and then perhaps have a conversation that goes further or just start some thinking that you take off and do on your own um, about this. So that whole kind of, I would use the word empathy again, the idea that, you know, you're trying to make connections. I think the other thing I've seen with a lot of students, particularly undergrads, who've had this very unusual um, journey into higher education because they had an odd GCSE final year or they had an odd A-level mm -hmm. final year or they had first year impacted where they were completely virtual and didn't meet their fellow students um, mm -hmm. due to the pandemic. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of um, social concern and um, some of that isn't always um, sort of seen or understood. And so having those moments where you do get to take off your I'm a university lecturer hat and just be a human being or a, a parent, you know, not a parent to them, but you're a parent yourself. So you have that level of empathy for someone who's going through the journey. It's an interesting, isn't it? There's a, there's a phrase in the psychology literature, inattentional blindness. 
And it's like most of most of life is going past a, a million miles an hour and you don't really need every piece of information you're exposed to. How much of listening to someone else's story are we filtering through need to know, might need to know later, actually that's not relevant to me. And just the, just the whole application of that inattentional blindness and attention, it's a, it's a limited resource. And mm -hmm. listening to someone else's story is exhausting and it takes a lot out of you, but it's rewarding at the same leisure. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's maybe this new generation need a bit more direction on that. And I think maybe getting into, so getting into flow and having, so through the creative expression, just actually having that, we talked about mindful, but actually through their career, writing a poem or, you know, constructing a collage or whatever. So many of them write about it being a space to breathe, a space to process, a space to reflect, because it's going at a million miles an hour for them as well. It's like someone described it a few years ago as starting university. It's like as a medical student, it was like a light is switched on the whole time. And this course was a chance to kind of switch off the light and just like, mm -hmm. but actually then process some of the things that are bothering them. And and uh, so it's that sort of shadow work. And because you don't have to fully say it through the, art, you know, like when you're expressing um, you don't have to nail it out and like write it all out. So it makes it safer to kind of touch around the edges of the bits that feel potentially a bit difficult. I mean, visually what I have in mind on this island is coming, uh, continuing Russell's laser pen metaphor, that red light that, cause Louise, you were talking about this, creating a safe space where, hmm. whether students can have their own bubbles or a space where you create it between you. So like the, this listening safe experimental space when they sort of had, can hang up that I'm a student, I have to do things, have to do assessment, but having this creative space to be, to become mm -hmm. and to almost like process things as a learner and process things in their own lives. And that's not, that's not a space in our exam driven school ex that students have had to. So almost like I can imagine creating or we have created this space on the islands you you are creating these spaces so i think that sounds like a really really, really important space for for students and for ourselves as well but i'm calling it too. i'm yeah. calling this flourishing spaces so i'm trying to create spaces okay. in higher education for flourishing spaces okay, so like great. student staff art exhibitions or you know creative inquiry space it doesn't all have to be you know it can be just where you're really doing really good listening and sharing or, or whatever but flourishing spaces, and I think they do need to be built in more than ever because everything else is going so fast. We actually need to mindfully bring them into place. So I'm sort of trying to research and explore what they are. I don't, you know, but, but I think it's a useful concept. So maybe we can uh, call out for our listeners as well to share some of the, their flourishing spaces or the spaces that they have created. And maybe we could gather these some, somehow together. That would be we amazing. We're actually doing um, uh, our annual uh, Islands of Innovation Festival in May the 10th. So I can sort of call attention to this, but maybe we could call on all of you who are doing something on this and any of the any of the other examples you've mentioned to come and present and bring your ideas to share with others at the, at the festival. So that probably concludes, I think that's a lovely image to conclude with this flourishing space on our uh, Treasure Islands. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to our podcast and to join as a guest, you can fill out our expression of interest form on our Liverpool Uni CIE website and where you can also access all the previous episodes and goodbye for now. And finally, a big thank you for our guest today. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.